0: A pleasure to welcome our first guest. Marcus Kolga is joining us from the McDonald Laurier Institute for uh, Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. He's in Toronto today to talk to us about a couple of global uh, events, uh, events of global significance. Marcus Kolga, good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Sounds like it's a beautiful day in Vancouver. It's astonishing. It's absolutely wonderful. We've, we're on a, a great run here, Marcus. We've had four or five days of just fabulous stuff, and at least another four or five on the way. You caught us right in the middle of a good spell. So let's talk a little bit about let, let's talk a little bit about Halifax, and then we'll we'll turn to your area of real expertise, Eastern Europe, and talk about Russia and Ukraine. But Marcus, this business at the Halifax Security Forum, uh, the McCain Award to the President of uh, that was to have taken place. Can you give us some background to it? All I know is is what the newspapers have have given us, which was the McCain family approved the award to the president of Taiwan uh, for being the president of Taiwan and standing up to China. Uh, And Cindy McCain, John McCain's widow, was going to present the the award at the conference. Uh, And uh, the Canadian government, as I understand it, very Quietly let it be known to the organizers of the conference that if this was to go forward and they were to award and, and uh, highlight uh, the president of Taiwan, uh, the government of Canada would pull its support of this uh, Halifax Security Forum next year and going forward, uh, thereby, thereby essentially uh, um, putting it out of business. Now, this is the story that I've heard. You're the security expert in this conversation, Mr. Kolga. What
1: have you heard?
2: Well, I've, you know, I've heard very much the, the same thing. And and quite frankly, when the story broke, I guess it was last uh, late last week. I mean, I was I was shocked and, and utterly perplexed by by this uh you know apparent decision by the Canadian government to um really I mean it, the the it's deep appeasement towards the Chinese regime whereby I sure. uh you know we're we're threatening to pull the plug on one of the uh world's most you know leading security forums a, a a platform where Canada can really shine its foreign policy or defense officials, our civil society um, experts, um, it's, a, it's a global platform uh, that's provided for them where mm-hmm. we can discuss our foreign policy and defense issues. So it's, um, you know, the fact that the the government would want to re- potentially threaten that, um, and, and it's a great source of revenue, actually, for the city of Halifax. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of participants. Um, the city is full of of experts and staffers um, for several days for this, this event. So, uh, you know, this, this sort of a decision is, in, on, in, in, as far as Canada is concerned, is perplexing. The international reputational damage that this does, however, mm-hmm. is even worse. Um, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, Taiwan. This is a, a government that for the past uh, 30 years or so, has really become a leading global democracy. It is it is the kind of uh, democracy that Canada aspires to be. It has a strong, independent female leader. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the world's first transgender cabinet minister who runs uh, the, the digital sort of ministry for Taiwan, which is also a global leader. Um, it is, like I said, everything that we aspire to be. So for us to, uh, you know... Not only pull the plug on, a, on an important venue and a, an event for Canada, but to, you know basically punish a democracy like this while appeasing a government in China that is right now engaging in one of the biggest genocides in modern history. Yeah. is, um, you know, it's, quite frankly, as a Canadian embarrassing.
0: Well, yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, that this story, Marcus, and, and I suppose this this uh, c- uh, it backs up the suspicions of some Canadians who are le- less than trusting of, of our media. This story came to us by way of the United States-based publication Politico.com. Yeah. So we learn about this not from our own people doing the digging that is required of, of good journalists everywhere. We learn a story about it from an American publication and they learn and they've heard about it through the mccain family well and this i
2: mean it sort of makes sense um you know the the mccain family uh, it's the mccain institute that is largely uh, beh- help you know behind the the halifax the sec- security forum they're they're giving it their support and a lot of right. backing um and so it's you know it comes as no surprise that if you know the canadian government is giving this signal to the mccain family who's responsible and you know Cindy McCain is on the board um, of of the uh, Halifax Security Forum. Um, right. They may know a journalist there and 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 talk to them. So that's I'm I, I'm not sure that that's the 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 issue here. Uh, but the, certainly the fact that a, a U.S. publication is picking up on this, it does mm. make international news. It it made significant waves in, in the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, Megan McCain, for full transparency, is a, is a friend of mine. And I know that she was tweeting about it. And you know, when M- Megan McCain, who's a very popular, well-loved celebrity in the U.S., when she tweets yes. about it, it's not it's not a good thing. Um, and it's but it is a good thing in so far as somebody is holding uh, you know some, whoever made this decision in government to account. Uh, and I should add to that that Michael Chong, the uh, conservative shadow minister for foreign affairs, um, right? He did an amazing. I, it's it's unbelievable how quickly. He was able to table a resolution calling on the, par- uh, the for the Parliament of of Canada, uh, calling on the government and for the Halifax Forum to actually award uh, the President of Taiwan, Ing Wen Tsai, uh, this award, um, and it was unanimous. So, uh, it's it's remarkable, quite frankly, and given that Michael Chong's success in in passing a resolution about the Chinese genocide in Xinjiang, yes. mm-hmm.
1: um,
2: you know, it's it's funny. Michael Chong seems to be doing more in terms of developing Canadian foreign policy than the government itself. so um, And reflecting the views
0: of Canadians, given that the resolutions that he's passed have been passed unanimously. Yeah, uh, and, if, so, and we know. Yeah. We also know, Marcus, then, that uh, in in terms of polls, and there are multiple sources for polling, that will tell you that at least eighty percent of the Canadian voting population is is distressed at the lack of backbone demonstrated by the government of Canada. They're not representing our interests and our sentiments when it comes to China. Not even close. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Sterling. Um, you, you, the polling does show that.
2: And, you know, it seems like every week or every couple of weeks, another story like this emerges. This this story about Taiwan uh, is, is completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary. What and being vigorously
0: denied, Marcus, that's the other part of the story. Not only did we learn about it through an American source rather than one of our own, but then when the government is confronted with the facts mm. uh, as as pre- represented by Politico, uh, they go into absolute denial mode. The defense minister is still uh, d- digging his heels in uh, uh, saying, no, no, this is absolute nonsense, uh, not true, not true. But if the rest of the world knows it is, all of that protesting yeah. just sounds silly.
2: Well, and he's also accused uh, the, the organizers of the conference of partisanship. Uh, I think there was a quote by Stephen, by Stephen Chase uh, in the Globe and Mail the other day, where, whereby the minister said that um, because the forum is actually it's organized, its lead organizer is a, is a former staffer for uh, former defense minister, Peter McKay. I mean, that mm. has nothing to do with this. This is a, a matter of principle. It's much higher yeah. than than someone's, uh, you know, domestic politics. I'm not sure that the organizers of the Halifax Security Conference are, quite frankly, thinking about an election. I think it's the, the government right now, if anyone, is, uh, is talking about elections. So trying to pull this into some sort of a, uh, a some, you know, trying to win partisan points from it is... Uh, is also deeply deeply embarrassing and shameful. so do
0: we know uh, michael i have to take a break or, i'm sorry marcus i have to take a break for the news here but do we know just before the break the break do we know th- if this is off the table that this uh, the the award to uh Wen y- Tsai, the president of taiwan will not be given uh specifically this year because of the pressure exerted by the government of canada is is it off the table
2: it's hard to say. Uh, you know, from a public relations standpoint, I don't know how they cannot give it or how they can object or pull funding for this now, given the uh, the
0: egg that's all over their face after this um, disastrous week uh, uh, with this story. Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Mr. Kolga is a, an Eastern European expert. And Marcus, we appreciate the information and the the discussion on the uh, awarding of the uh, uh, McCain a prize to the president of Taiwan. But now let's turn to an area of the world in which you have uh, focused a lot of your attention and your career, namely Eastern Europe. And we've watched, and you and I talked about this about two or three weeks ago, uh, watching the buildup of, of troops and train after train after train of, of tanks and self-propelled uh, heavy guns and so on. The buildup has been extraordinary. And we've been, we know this because of the internet and, and uh, social media and people people in Ukraine literally taking cell phone pictures of these trains rolling through their towns and putting them up so the world can see the buildup. So America and the world has noticed the president of the United States has requested a summit with Vladimir Putin to maybe dial back some of this tension. Let's talk a little bit, Marcus, about why the tension exists in the first place. What's Russia trying to get out of this?
2: Well, it's a good question, Sterling. I think everyone's sort of scratching their heads and wondering what, what's going on, why now? The, uh, the build-up and the escalation has been massive. And, uh, you know, the people that I'm seeing, uh, you know, former uh, U.S. generals, uh, European uh, defense experts, they're all really deeply, deeply concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are suggesting that uh, Vladimir Putin may be wanting to send a message to Joseph Biden um, uh, to show him uh, Russia's strong, it's not going to back down on Ukraine. Um, it would be welcome if that was the only case here. Um, unfortunately, these sorts of buildups, when you have, you know, it's around 110,000 troops that have been amassed uh, around the borders of, of Ukraine, like you said, uh, tanks, artillery. Um. But more concerning are are these new bases that are popping up around uh, around the Ukrainian border, with mm-hmm. uh, field hospitals um, and uh, a massive redirection uh, of Russian naval resources from the north to the uh, to the Black Sea. And uh, most recently, they've Russia has announced that it's going to be cutting off access to a very important uh, Ukrainian port, Mariupol, uh, cutting it off uh, on the Azov Sea. So all of this, if you're doing this, it's generally it means that you're you mean business. You're about mm-hmm. to, um, you know, there's going to be some sort of action somewhere, and certainly there has been in in eastern Ukraine um, since January. Uh, in fact, 30 Ukrainian uh, soldiers have been killed by by Russian fire. Um, there's a report on BBC just this morning about uh, Russian drones being flown over the Ukrainian front lines. They fly them over there. With uh, grenades underneath, and they're dropping mm-hmm. grenades onto uh, Ukrainian positions. Um, and of course, what Russia is saying is that this is all a response to uh, NATO's build-up <laughs> on on uh, on Russia's borders. And there has been no build-up. So, right, uh, you know, Russia's rhetoric, its actions, all seem to indicate that there is something big that is going to happen within the next
0: weeks, perhaps months. Do you think uh, Mr. Biden recognizes this? Uh, he's just uh, uh, done some very extraordinary uh, work in terms of, uh, uh, de- uh, well, uh, I, I suppose, ending the war in Afghanistan, something that several of his predecessors were unable to do. So we know that where we're, we're, he's taking a position in that regard, uh, uh, he's asked for a summit. Let's talk about this before anything gets out of hand. Do you think uh, Putin is going to comply? Well, first of all, we should
2: mention that uh, Joe Biden announced his government announced sanctions, a huge round of sanctions on the uh, on the Russian government. Uh, this included the expulsion of 10 diplomats from Washington, from the right, Russian yes. embassy. Yeah. And uh, and also the uh, the application of sanctions on on platforms, media platforms that are responsible for interfering in the U.S. 2020 elections, and I should mention that these same platforms have attacked Canadian political uh, elected officials and Canadian Canadian interests uh, for the past uh, six seven years as well. Mm-hmm. So he's sending a message to Putin that you know he he's going to stand up for uh, U.S. democracy. This uh, this suggestion of a, a summit is is curious. I think every uh president thinks that they might be able to or at least they give a shot at at trying to talk to vladimir putin Mm
1: -hmm. and see
2: if they can't resolve things peacefully um we saw how this uh ended up for uh, the obama administration uh obama uh, and hillary clinton of course uh, famously had that big red button with uh, the russian foreign minister with reset uh, written on it and they hit the reset button but instead of a reset uh Vladimir Putin uh, saw that as a as weakness and started attacking. And that's where we saw uh, the interference in 2016 in the presidential election. That's, that's, what, that, uh, that's what that's what uh, diplomatic relations look like to Vladimir Putin. So, uh, you know, Joseph Biden, uh, Joseph, he's, uh, he's welcome to try to talk to Vladimir Putin. Uh, but Vladimir Putin is in, is in a tight spot right now domestically as well. He's, mm-hmm. he's pulling is down. He's facing massive uh, protests, uh, this spring, uh, due to the, uh, poisoning and, and incarceration of, of anti corruption crusader electing Navalny. Navalny and, yes. uh, we've seen, we've seen how Putin reacts to this, uh, this sort of, uh, pressure in the past. In 2014, of course, he invaded Crimea. Um, these sorts of shows of force, uh, uh, uh you know, it, it reminds Russians of their past Soviet imperial glory and the colonialism, the occupation of much of Central and Eastern Europe. And so, um, it plays well in the, in the domestic media. And, and so, like I said, uh, Joe Biden can try to talk to Vladimir Putin. Others have done, tried to do it, too. Mm. It, it, it doesn't work. And, uh, and I'm afraid it's not going to work this time as well
0: right but it's it's a dance you pretty much have to go through the formality of trying to do so you can get to the next point and marcus where's canada yeah. in all of this i can remember uh from when stephen harper was prime minister and uh the ukraine belligerence began from russia uh, 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 several years ago I might have been 13 mm-hmm. maybe 2014 harper was quite up front uh, he confronted putin and said back down you're not uh, supposed to be there he took a fairly strong position and articulate it. Where are we today in terms of Canada's position vis-a-vis this buildup?
2: Well, look, uh, you know, Canada has has taken a, a pretty you know, tough position in support of our allies, and certainly within NATO, um, Canada leads the NATO Enhanced Forward uh, Protection um, Mission in in Latvia. So that these are these are missions that NATO has put in place, uh, tripwire missions, as they're called. Uh, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. These are Mm -hmm. nations that are most at risk of potential invasion. Mm -hmm. Um, And Canada leads the Latvian uh, part of that. We also have uh, uh, a considerable number of members of our forces training Ukrainian uh, forces and have been doing so for for the past number of years. So in in terms of practical support, we are there. In terms of uh, where we are uh, with regards to uh, our rhetoric and our... And our, our our public projection of our foreign policy, um, you know, uh, I think we're pretty quiet. Uh, I I think it's uh, very similar to what what we've been seeing on China, where we sort of dance around a little bit. Uh, we've been ex- uh, extraordinarily weak on placing sanctions. We've we've seen the UK, the EU, the US place sanctions on. You know, uh, a wide range of Russian officials who engage in human rights abuses, who who've engaged in disinformation and and election interference. And we really fail to uh, to do any of that, even though our our allies are doing it. So, um, you know, I think our foreign policy in general is is rather inconsistent, incoherent um, and is requires a bit of a, a bit more vision and strategy at this point. Uh, but like I said, on, on in practical terms, with uh, with regards to Russia, I, I think we're okay, and, and we generally make the the right moves when it comes to making statements in uh, in coordination with our allies.
0: Yeah. Okay, Marcus. Uh, final question to you uh, as we look at this, and and I I think a lot of us are quite willing to accept that that this may be to a, a very large degree uh, a political theater on the part of Putin in order to. Uh, to play to the hometown folks, if you will, yeah. where his his power is is weakened because of their economy and so on. But yeah. if indeed there's more to it than just theatrics for the folks back home, how do you think this thing is going to end?
2: Uh, yeah, I I don't think it's going to end well. Um, you know, if you look at all, you know, take a step back and look at what's happening here. There's been a ratcheting up of pretty a uh, bloody war rhetoric, rhetoric uh since about december in russia so the pr uh machine is running and it's running really hard preparing yeah. russians for war um another really alarming thing that's that's been happening and isn't being reported on too widely is that russia is handing out uh russian passports all over occupied or the the conflict zone in in eastern ukraine Um, Just anyone who wants one, basically, you you get a a Russian passport. This um, could be used as a pretext for an invasion, because what Russia has been very loudly saying since the early 2000s is that it reserves the right to protect Russians living abroad by any means necessary. And so we've already heard that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Russia is blaming NATO for encircling it, uh, as it always does. But it's also uh, accusing uh, Ukraine of, of violating the rights of, of Russians. And so I'm I'm nearly certain, 99% certain, that uh, Russia is going to use this as a pretext in, in Donbass, and it will move in at some point uh, before the end of May um, in order to secure, quote-unquote, secure and protect those Russians. And uh, it's, it's not going to end well for, for Ukraine. I'm not sure that if... If Putin is willing to go that far, I'm not sure if it's just going to stop there.
0: Mm, well, this does not bode well at all, but we do appreciate the update, Marcus. Uh, it's, it's very important that we at least have an understanding of what's going on in order to have an appreciation of what could be. Thanks very much for your time. It's great to have you back on the show, Marcus. We'll talk again.
2: Anytime, Sterling. Thanks for
0: having me on. On the line with me from the Faculty of Law at Queen's University is Professor Gail Henderson. Professor Henderson wrote a piece recently at theconversation.com that caught Andrew and my attention almost instantly, given our, shall we say, obsession with financial literacy. Here's the title of the piece Gail wrote. Especially after COVID-19, Canadians need to better financial literacy and teachers can help. Gail Henderson joins us now from Kingston, Ontario. Professor Henderson, Gail, good morning and welcome.
3: Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us, Gail. We appreciate it very much. I am a, a, a bit of a fanatic about financial literacy. I do I spend as much time as I can on the matter. When Andrew and I saw your piece the other day, I, we, we just, it was immediate. There was, it was a no-brainer for us, Gail. Let's see if we can get Professor Henderson on the show. Can we start, Gail, by getting your definition of financial literacy, please?
3: Right. So we, um, in my research with uh, Professor Beach, We rely on the definition that the Task Force on Financial Literacy, the Canadian Federal Task Force, um, in their report used 10 years ago as having the knowledge, skills and confidence to make responsible financial decisions. And that's the definition that most people use. And I think the interesting thing about being financially literate is that it includes both knowledge of financial concepts, but also the ability and confidence to apply them in making decisions, so, you know, those two pieces are both very important.
0: Would it be a reasonable conclusion to draw from that? And based, again, on, on the premise of your of the title of your piece, especially after COVID-19, Canadians need better financial literacy. So, Gail, is it possible that those of us who are somewhat more literate than others are going to do better in the recovery portion of this uh, post-COVID-19 phase?
3: I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that financial literacy isn't the whole story um, when it comes to our own financial well-being, right? We don't, we don't all start from the same place, unfortunately. Um, but certainly, financial literacy can help in making financial decisions, uh, especially in our increasingly complex financial world. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, there's so many financial products out there. They're very complicated. You know, maybe they sound good at first, but then there's all sorts of other terms attached to them, and and so our ability to understand the implications of those things um, is very important. And you know, I would also note that the Canada's National Strategy on Financial Literacy includes, you know, managing money and debt wisely, but also planning and saving for the future. And so I think that piece is also, you know, COVID has really highlighted the importance of that planning for the future, you know, some positive things, hopefully we'll be able to travel again at some point and Mm -hmm. saving for those vacations, but also planning and saving for emergencies as well.
0: So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, recent phenomenon during COVID. I mean, we're going through this bizarre phase right now, Gail, where a lot of people, uh, there's uh, apparently a fair degree of cash available, uh, and and a lot of people are uh, have way too much time on their hands, uh, <laughs> not particularly by, of their own choosing, but nonetheless, that's what we're, they're stuck with. So we had this phenomenon a few weeks ago with GameStop and other mm. algorithmically driven uh, investment Vehicles that suddenly became very popular, made a lot of money for some people over a very short period of time, and saw a lot of other people lose a lot of money. Uh, again, uh, a gamble, really, uh, not much difference between that and playing roulette in Las Vegas. And yet, it right. was super attractive to a lot of people, especially young people all over the world. It was huge.
3: Yeah, that was, I mean, that's an interesting story. It caught a lot of people's attention. And, you know, I think that is an example of, you know, um, short selling isn't necessarily something that a lot of us understand fully, but, you know, people can jump into things maybe without fully understanding them. There's obviously a regulatory piece to that as well, Um, but there's also a financial literacy piece, and and part of financial literacy is behavioural. Right? in terms of mm-hmm. um, maybe being too quick to jump into something or getting nervous and, and you know, pulling your investments uh, at a time when markets might be a bit volatile. And so you know, I think the, the thing that is important to me and I think to emphasize with respect to the education system in particular is sometimes we tend to think of financial literacy as being only related to math. So if we're good at math, if we're good at reading and will be financially literate, and that's we're finding that that's not the whole story. There is Good also, point. A, you yeah, a habit forming piece to that as well. And so, in terms of teaching kids about financial literacy, you know, making sure that they they have the the math skills to understand, for example, compound interest, but they also see how that applies in regular life in making financial decisions.
0: I suppose many of us uh, right now uh, are are surprised to hear, Gail, that there is even such a thing as a national strategy or action plan for financial literacy in Canada. Tell us more, please.
3: Yeah, so the that national strategy on financial literacy, that was the result of um, I mentioned earlier the task force, so mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. was an initiative um, of the Harper government back um, out following on the global financial crisis in 2008.
0: In 2008, yeah. There,
3: yeah, there was, a, there was sort of this real push to improve financial literacy. That was seen as part of the story of the global financial crisis. So in 2010, the Canadian Federal Task Force published its report recommending a national strategy. So the national strategy was published in 2015. It's currently under review, and so I think we'll see a new national strategy uh, coming out this year from the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. But, um, you know, as someone who, who spends a lot of time working on this stuff, you know, it's good to be reminded that it's not everyone's bread and butter. And, and yeah, I don't think a lot of people are aware of it.
0: I, I I agree. I, I'm sure that there are many people having an early Saturday morning cup of coffee in Vancouver going, Really? There is such a thing? Well, it could have fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's reflected to a certain extent in the education system as it exists right now, Gail. It, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of emphasis on this at all.
3: No, I, th- I think that is changing. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, across the country, more and more provinces integrating this into a part of the mandatory curriculum, and that is a result um, that was one of the task force's recommendations, and it's mentioned in the national strategy. Of course, it's up to each province um, whether they do it and how, Um, but, but yeah, I think it is increasingly being seen as an important part of the curriculum and being integrated accordingly.
0: Joined by Professor Gail Henderson from the Faculty of Law at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Professor Henderson wrote a piece along with a co-author entitled, Especially After COVID-19, Canadians Need Better Financial Literacy and Teachers Can Help. And you go on, Gail, to say in your piece, experts agree that to change spending and saving habits, financial literacy education must start early, preferably in elementary school. Couldn't agree with you more. How did you reach this conclusion? What 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 path did you take that allowed you to arrive at that conclusion?
3: Yeah, so that's something that's come out of the a prior research on um, financial literacy. That you know, again, as I mentioned, because there's this knowledge piece, but also uh, a habit piece. And so, if you get to kids early and uh, give them these skills before they have formed. Maybe not so good habits as uh, teenagers or young adults. Um, it can have that's when financial literacy education can have the most impact.
0: Okay, so now how do we get teachers better involved? Because the assumption there is that teachers themselves are adequately financially literate in order to be able to teach it. And why I appreciate it when you're talking to elementary kids? You're you're talking some pretty fundamental uh, uh, concepts, but still, um, not all teachers are necessarily on the same page regarding that are they
3: yeah i mean i think so you know what we found in our survey is that and you know we surveyed ontario teachers but i would imagine that results would be fairly similar in british columbia teachers overwhelmingly were in favor of teaching financial literacy at the elementary school level. Um, But we also found that their comfort level with teaching financial concepts varied. So overall, teachers expressed that they were moderately comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is, you know, a piece here that I think teachers are enthusiastic about incorporating this into the curriculum, but they need some help in doing so.
0: Okay, so various provincial ministries of education need to step up how uh, Gail and to uh, in terms of uh, promoting a, a, a curriculum that is understandable by the students and easy to teach.
3: I think that's you know uh, part of it. One issue that we found is teachers said they were either unsure where to find resources so the curriculum might tell them that you know you should be teaching, your students about spending and saving. Mm -hmm. But then how to do that is at least partly left up to the individual teachers. And so, you know, I think ministries of education can do a bit more to provide um, good, um, helpful resources to teachers for how they can make this um, interesting and also demonstrate to students the, uh, the application in real life. So I think some teachers who are doing this, we found in our survey are, you know, they're coming up with ways of making this seem real to the students. So if there's a field trip, you know, back, obviously this, this research predated COVID, but if the class was planning a field trip, you know, how, how much was that going to cost? How would they um, pay for it? So, you know, again, making sure that the students understand how those concepts apply in real life. And I think, you know, when students see the practical application, they're more likely to be engaged and, and learn the material. Um, but the ministry has a role to play in sort of providing to teachers those resources so that they can do those things. It's not completely left up to them.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I remember field trips. They used to be fun. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted to bring a, a, a publication to your attention this morning, Professor Henderson. I had a guest uh, on the show, and again, I'm, I'm uh, rather passionate about the, the whole concept of financial literacy. I came across a chartered professional accountant in North Vancouver named Doug Allen a few months ago. Yeah, Doug is a, a very, a very accomplished individual, but he's not a teacher. But he wrote a book called "A Fighting Chance." The High School Financial Education Everyone Deserves. And I had him on the show and I said, Doug, why'd you write the book? He said, because I didn't get any when I was in high school. Zero. Zip. He's now a very accomplished businessman and a successful CPA. He wrote this book, Gail, because he didn't get what the book contains. Have you heard of the book?
3: Um, I haven't heard of that one, but I have definitely heard that a similar sentiment expressed by many people. And I think this is why, you know, and this is the thing I I enjoy about this research, that people are really engaged in it. They see that it's important. They feel passionate about it. Um, And to some extent, it's because they didn't get this through the education system. And so, you know, hopefully we're seeing that change. It is being incorporated into the curriculum at the elementary and high school level. Um, But, you know, that's the push for that is, I think, coming from people like um, Doug Allen and who said, you know, we didn't get it and this is important. And so there is a push. And I should mention that the national strategy did mention the fact that this is a collective effort and a collaborative Mm -hmm. effort. So not just on the formal education system, but uh, nonprofit organizations. There's lots of them doing this work and and individuals like um, like Doug Allen.
0: Well, I hope that the push is well underway, Gail Henderson. I'm I'm delighted that you are part of the pushing movement. It's a pleasure to have you on the program this morning, and I look forward to an opportunity to continue this conversation down the road.
3: That would be great. Thank you very much, Sterling.
0: Well, Squire Barnes is on the line now to talk a little Canucks hockey and possibly look around the corner to tomorrow's uh, season-opening Vancouver Whitecaps game. Squire, good morning.
4: Hi, Sterling. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm fine, thank you. Got a little bit of a technical glitch at my end, but I hope you can hear me okay. I saw you on TV last night talking about the plight of the Vancouver Canucks. I want to talk about the the injury to Pedersen, but let's let's get uh, let's get our fans up to date here on on a Saturday morning, Squire. Last night's game was postponed. They were supposed to play again tonight. That's been pushed back until when? Is it tomorrow now?
4: It is tomorrow, so it gives them a couple of extra days to you know get their legs underneath them, get back in shape basically as best they can because originally the NHL had them playing last night and tonight after what yeah. would have been only one practice on Thursday. So it would have been a potential disaster out there.
0: Were you surprised when JT Miller earlier in the week kind of stood up for his teammates and said, no matter what the schedule says, we're just not ready. It would be dangerous for us to play. Uh, Did that surprise you at all?
4: Well, you don't often hear a player be that blunt in that way. I mean, a lot of times the players will, you know, not in the word, I guess, sort of play the tough guy. It's like, okay, we'll do what we have to do. But he did, he was blunt, and and quite frankly, Storming, I think if he hadn't done that, they would have played last night and they would have played tonight. Yeah, You know, the the thing about the schedule that was put out originally when we knew the Canucks were coming back off the COVID outbreak is this is a schedule that wouldn't have just been the NHL saying, okay, here's the schedule. The Players Association, the union, would have had to sign off on this as well. So Mm -hmm. basically what, what J.T. Miller was doing was sounding the alarm not just to the league, but also his own union, that, hey, guys, we're not ready. This is a bad idea. And um, yeah. if you look over it in the NBA, the Toronto Raptors went through something similar. They had a bit of an outbreak, too. And when they yes. got most of their guys back, they went like 1-13. And after mm-hmm. that of losing, Fred Van Vliet said, look, in the second half of games, we're not in the same kind of shape we were before we were sick. We can't get our win. And I think that's what the Canucks are saying. Look, we don't know what kind of shape we're going to be in. And not to give you too long an answer here, but I know the NHL wants to keep the integrity of a 56-game schedule this year. Everybody plays 56 games. Okay, that's fine. But to me, there'd be no integrity if you put the Canucks out last night and tonight So it's almost like an easy win for Edmonton and Toronto. How's that fair? Mm
3: -hmm. So
4: this makes it gives a little more integrity by giving the Canucks a couple of days to get ready.
0: Yeah, I think it is a very fair point, Squire, to make, and Nick Nurse uh, back there in Toronto would back you up to uh, to compare the performance of the Raptors at the beginning of their season after their episode with COVID, as to the likely performance of the Canucks after theirs. Uh, they uh, they say, and these are fit, healthy young guys too. I mean, there's there, there's no exception. Everyone is in the best possible, imaginable shape, and some of these guys have been really sick and. and. And despite the fact that they're young, fit, and healthy, this is apparently something you just don't bounce back from. And uh, the Raptors are are a very good example. And while we're staying with the Canucks for a second, Squire, you mentioned this on TV last night. Uh, The injury to Elias Pedersen, it looked like a wrist injury that, you know, might take a week or two to recover from. And now we're hearing he might be out for the rest of the season and possibly playoffs. Were they to make that? What's going on?
4: Well, that's a very good question. It was, uh, it's interesting because when, when he first got hurt, which was in early March, he got hurt in a game against the Jets, and, and you know, some say the risk. Some say maybe it's something worse like, you know, muscles injury, or maybe in the stomach or the abdomen area. We don't actually know officially what it is. But right. whatever the case, he got hurt in the game against Winnipeg, played the next game, and it got worse, I guess. And the Canucks said, oh, well, it's day-to-day. Now, I don't know if the Canucks are just saying that to throw you off the track or they really thought it was day to day because later in the month, um, they began to express, you know, surprise that he's still out. And he has Mm. been dating on his own, although that doesn't mean anything, of course. And he saw a specialist on Wednesday for this mysterious injury. And I guess uh, that visit didn't go so well so now they're kind of admitting that well maybe he won't be back the rest of the year and quite frankly you know their chances of making the playoffs especially after going through this COVID episode let's put it this way if they make the playoffs sterling after what they've gone through there will be a disney movie in a couple of years like there are certainly no question about that screenwriters ready to write this if this happens but so let's well, you know,
0: and the J the J T Miller moment, I'll tell you, is oh, definitely be, word for word going to be part of that right. movie.
4: Oh, but it's um, but and then it'll be a montage of all the games with some very you know uplifting music. But um, mm, mm-hmm. but I, I, if it was me, I would just say, okay, you know what, Elias, let's just shut you down for the year. Like, let's just right, wait next right. Year. I, reckon guy like I don't think
0: many fans will be surprised to hear if they make that move uh, now yeah. because it's been delayed so long. Not a lot of time left here, Mr. Barnes, but I would appreciate uh, a thought or two as we begin our new affiliation with the Vancouver Whitecaps, effective tomorrow on mm. my first Vancouver radio station, AM 730, used to be CKLG, and the Whitecaps are on the radio this year. Uh, they, they're they down in Utah where they've been for the past few weeks safely tucked away with their families, getting ready for the season. Any expectations for the Whitecaps for this year?
4: Well, I think the Whitecaps, well, they should be better than they were last year. But again, last year was crazy because it got stopped, and then they had that that tournament down in Orlando for all the teams to sort of get back into it. And, And players were allowed to opt out. And Lucas Cavallini, who's the Whitecaps' big striker, some of his family had been sick with COVID, so he decided to opt out. So that didn't help them, um, but he's ready to go this year, and he is their big signing, and he's uh you know part of Canada's national team, and he's the guy who can put balls in the net, and that's been Canada's, not Canada, but that's well, it has been Canada's problem, but it's also been the Whitecaps' yeah. problem. is lack of scoring. So the Whitecaps, yes. you know, pick up some players in the off season, some young players who I think are going to help them. The Whitecaps should be better this year, and the fact sterling that they had found a place to make a home away from home, down in, just outside of Salt Lake City, basically, should yep. also help them as well. Because last year after that tournament in Orlando, they moved up to Portland. They were never settled. I mean, you it is as a human being. Like, you get moved around all over the place and expect to do your best. This year, the fact they have a place to practice, it's a professional facility. They're down there. Their families can come down there this should make it much easier for the Whitecaps. And it would be exciting to have them on the radio with us here at Chorus, and I think it's going to be a good year for them.
0: I do, too. I hope it is. I hope it's entertaining to listen to as well. Square, great to, to, to have you on the show. Uh, lovely to roust you out of bed early on a Saturday. We must do this again. Thanks very much. Okay, Sterling.